Mike, you know, I've been seeing purple all week. Yeah, me too. I don't know. I don't know what I think about this. We're talking about the new Deezer icon and kind of redesign. Yeah, we have to explain this because I don't know how many people who listen use Deezer. I think a lot of them probably use Spotify and Apple. So we're in Japan here and, well, we have a limited choice of high-quality audio streaming services and the one we've been using is Deezer from France. And until now, they've had a little logo icon. It was sort of like a, I don't know, how would you describe it? It was a meter, sort of, you know, it kind of yeah, had a digital uh, it was like a digital meter. It was kind of cool. It had different colors. It looked sophisticated, you know. Yeah, and it represented you know. the idea of digital music. And now <laughs> it's been replaced with a purple fuzzy heart. Yeah. What does that mean? What's, what's with the heart? Why is it purple? I don't know. I don't understand this. Not only that, but it's a heart kind of made up of like sort of, I guess, like frequency measuring lines, I guess. I don't Somewhat, know. Somewhat. Yeah. yeah something, something like that. But it's such a small image that it just looks like a, it looks like Pac-Man technology, like put this together. You know, the icon on my phone or iPad, it looks like I'm on some kind of weird dating site <laughs> instead of music streaming. It's just so not right for what they do. I, I don't know what they were thinking. Yeah, they also changed all the fonts, which I guess I could do with. But here's the thing. We're the adult music podcast, and this is getting a little more uh, juvenile looking to me. I don't like these fonts, really. They look kind of like uh, fun. <laughs> well, music should be fun, but not a, this is a different kind of fun, you know? This is kind of like a Pompidou Center in Paris kind of right. um, fun vibe to it, you know? I think that's cool, though. I don't know. So if you're listening, Deezer, bring back the old style. <laughs> we liked it. Yeah, better. or at least, I don't know, get a... Get a more, I don't know, a heart. It's not really right for music, though. Yeah, it's not a dating site. And I don't know. The 1980s graphic style. Right. I don't think that was intended, but that's what it looks like to me. I'm sorry, mm. but that's the way I feel. I'm going to have a lot of uh, complaints about French companies tonight. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's another one coming up right after this uh, announcement. Anyway, you're listening to the Adult Music Podcast with music for the mature mind. I'm your co-host, Russ. And I'm, <laughs> I'm here. I'm your co-host, Mike. Sorry I was late on that. I was busy fuming. (laughs) (laughs) We're at episode 140, and just as an announcement, we're going to take a week off next week, get some other commitments and things going on, but we'll be back with a regular episode on November 27th, and then we'll have one more regular episode before our Christmas music episode on December 3rd, and then after that, we'll have two more regular episodes, and then we're going to roll out our best of 2023 episode at the end of the month in December. Yeah, now we're doing samples. That's going to be a lot of work because in the past, it was just 40 minutes and done. Now we're going to try to sample everything. It's going to be everybody's favorite episode probably because we'll have good samples on it, but I think it'll take a lot of preparation during Christmas week too, boy. (laughs) Yeah, well, anyway, it will be a good chance to look back at all the good music we heard this year. All right, that'll be our Christmas gift to you listeners because it's coming out on Christmas Day, I think, or Christmas Eve or something. So look forward to that. And as usual, tonight we're going to bring you six recordings, three classical and three jazz. Some really interesting music with a lot of variety here tonight. And as always, in the episode description, you can find links to Spotify and Apple Music for all the music that we're going to discuss. At the top of the description, there's a link to the full episode playlist. That's all the music in one place on the purple fuzzy-hearted Deezer (laughs) that we use. You can listen to the podcast on Deezer as well. And if you can't see the full description or recording list and links on your app, you can always come over to our host site. That's Podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N.com, where everything is easy to follow. If you enjoy the podcast, please follow or subscribe. 
wherever you listen to us. Tell a music-loving friend, help us get some new listeners, and if you take a moment to give us a ranking or write a review, that helps us get listed in the podcast music category recommendations, another way we get new listeners. Also, please come over and follow us on Facebook. We've got a page there. You can get extra info and new releases throughout the week. You can leave a message or comment there. And if you'd like to contact us directly with any comments or questions, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is adultmusicpodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. We also want to mention our friends over at the same difference, two jazz fans, one jazz standard podcast. That's AJ and Johnny, who look at several versions of one jazz standard in each episode. It comes out twice a month. They play little snippets from each version, talk about the history of the original and the different versions, what they like and don't like, give you a little history lesson too, and there'll be a link to their podcast at the end of our description. Also, if you stick around to the end of the audio, you can hear a little promo from them. And we're going to be going on their podcast really soon. We've Hmm. got that date set up before the end of the month, and we'll be uh, doing some standard work with them and look forward to that as well. Standards. And uh, we play a little bit longer samples than snippets, actually. I'm going to have some long ones tonight. Oh, really? Yes. And this is our fair use disclaimer. Uh, The music sample clips are for commentary and educational purposes. We recommend that listeners listen to the complete recordings, all of which are available on streaming services in the links provided. We also suggest that if you enjoy the music, you consider purchasing the CDs or high-quality downloads to support the artists. Okay, so we're going to go into this. Let's jump in. Where are we going to start tonight in the classical? Oh, man. Do you know where we're going to start? We're going to start with what really is an excellent album, Beyond, Hmm. by the countertenor Jakob Josef Orlinski, and he's accompanied by Il Pomodoro. They have some great accompaniments, but they're not really only accompanying when they're doing that. They have some great colors in them. They get some solo spots themselves. And this is on the Erato label, (laughs) like Deezer, based in France, as they're part of Warner Classics, who are in France, okay? Right. All right, now, this is um, an album of Italian Baroque songs, and I just jumped on this. And so I got the CD of this, of course. I'm going to talk about this a little bit later, but before I do, <laughs> no, Elinsky puts together great programs with his um, music scholar buddy, Giannis Francoise, and uh, they did that on this album, too. And they've come up with something really special. But first, I need to do a rant before I start talking about this <laughs> fantastic album. Are we ready? The CD, I have the CD, mm-hmm. and it comes with the song texts with no translations. Okay. <laughs> they do have them online. Online, they have the, the same booklet, but it has all the translations with the sung text online. Right. Now, I have to ask you, why did they do that? I paid how much money for this uh, CD? Yeah. You know, and uh, I bought the CD, first of all, but so I wouldn't have to go on the computer when I listen to the CD, I don't like having my computer around with right. me. You know, they've only put the uh, the song text. Now, yeah, I've, I speak pretty good Italian, but this is 18th century Italian. It's poetry. <laughs> right. So it's kind of hard to, you know, follow along. You, you basically know what it's, what it's about, though. They're all about the same thing. But now I have to go online to, like, look at the, or on my computer, which I, I've downloaded these texts at the screen to look at the computer. I don't want to be on a computer looking at a screen every minute of my life. <laughs> I actually don't like being on the internet, as you might have noticed, because on our Facebook page, Russ puts up all the uh, his jazz recommendations that I occasionally will put up a classical <laughs> on, because I just don't like being on the internet. <laughs> right. I want to be reading a book or something like that, something that doesn't involve a screen. Anyway. Yeah, anyway, the point is, yeah. you should be giving something extra to the people who yes. buy the physical copy. Right, so. if I bought the physical copy, I want something extra, okay? So... Right. 
And I actually wrote to Warner Classics slash Erato to complain about this. And I want to also mention that um, Warner Classics released um, a Christmas album last year. We'll just link it to Christmas right now. Diana Damrau's album, My Christmas. And it's a double album of mostly German uh, Christmas songs that mm-hmm. she sings. And they did the same thing again. There's only the German sung texts in the uh, booklet with no translations, which they want you to go online for. But when you go online for that, they didn't put the <laughs> the booklet up. There's oh, really? nothing there. <laughs> yeah, so now I have the CD and I have the text. I guess I'm better off than people who are streaming because they have nothing. Oh. So I wrote to them and, I, I, and they conveniently have a, a thing on their um, message page, which is complaints. So I put it oh. under complaints. And I talked about the Olinsky how I don't want to have to go online to get this stuff and have to look at my computer all day. And I told them, you actually didn't put these up for the um, Diana Damrau, my Christmas album, which means you're not really serving me as the CD buyer, right? You, right. you haven't given me what you've um, promised and you should have put it in the CD booklet anyway. And uh, they didn't respond. So I wrote again, two, I think it may have been two or three days later, saying, you know, can you please put the, uh, I was complaining about the Diana Damrau thing right. again. So again, no response. And today, I wrote for the third time, but I didn't file it under complaints. I filed it under other something else. You know, right? Wonder if I'll get a response. But it's like the the complaint box and just people just throw it in the trash or something. You know. Anyway, Erato Warner Classics, thumbs down for um, customer service. Anyway, all right. Now I don't want to uh, give people a bad feeling about this absolutely fantastic album by. Jakob Josef Olinsky. Right. Okay, let's get happy now. Okay. There it is. I'm done fuming. All I right. have spoken. I can be happy. Here we go. <laughs> and there's a lot of reason to be happy. This is a really great album. First of all, it has all these great Italian songs. They range from the uh, 17th century from around 1602 to the year 1690. So it's really the entire 17th century. And Orlinsky says that the theme of this album, his albums always have themes, sort of like our podcast, right? Right. We're going to go for that kind of beyond spiritual kind of theme for this podcast, I think. I don't know if we have a name yet, but... Uh, it will come to us. Yeah, it'll come to us. we got to get that right word. But uh, he's delving into the meaning of the word beyond on this album. That's why he's called it beyond. Especially in the sense that this music resonates beyond its own time. Yes, when people talk about, oh, we're listening to music by dead white guys. No, they're not. They may be dead, but their music is not. It resonates beyond its time. Well said, all right? This is why we still listen to it. It has something in it that we can't really reproduce today, and uh, so we still value it. Anyway, Orlinsky's friend, uh, Yanis Francois, did period research and dug up some previously forgotten pieces. This is one of the wonderful things about Orlinsky albums. He'll always kind of have a few familiar sort of songs in there. And then there'll be something you've never heard of before by a composer you've never heard of before. So I feel like I'm still kind of, you know, in school in a way, kind of learning about uh, a new composer. Mm. And that's always very exciting for me. It's one of the things that really attracted me to all of this um, period instrument um, music and the research in Baroque music in particular. Okay. So Yannis Francois is the creator of the program. There are first recordings of many pieces on this album and the composer who is most represented on this album, the new person who nobody knows, and I didn't know before I heard this uh, album, is Giovanni Cesare Netti, a new name for me, as Hmm. I said. By the way, before we start talking about this album, I want to talk a little bit about um, Jakob Josef Olinsky himself. Besides being an operatic countertenor, he's also a champion breakdancer. 
and is a member of the breakdancing collective Skill Fanatics Crew. I guess they're in Poland. And he's known to occasionally um, bust a move while he's doing <laughs> opera. No, he combines breakdancing with opera. It'll be something to see. And in fact, I've posted um, about him on, um, on Facebook so you can right. see uh, a short video about him actually doing his breakdancing. It's pretty amazing. He's also modeled for fashion brands such as Nike and Levi's. Yeah, he's a pretty handsome guy. Hmm. So he's in music school and somebody told him, oh, you're a countertenor voice. I just want to point out, nobody ever told me I was a countertenor voice or a tenor or a baritone. Nobody even told me that I have a radio voice. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I really envy these people that uh, just have their careers laid out for them, you know. All right, anyway, let's get to the program. There are 34 tracks I don't know how fast I'm going to go through these. Some of them are multi-movement works, so we'll go through them fast. Anyway, the first track, and this is one to absolutely hear, Claudio Monteverdi, one of my favorite composers, Eppur io torno qui. This is uh, sung by the character Ottone in Act 1, Scene 1 of L'Incoronazione di Popea, the coronation of Popea, who, I, rem- I forgot how this goes. She's involved with Nero or something. It's an ancient Roman story. This was... Uh, published in 1642. And we're going to hear Ottone's entrance aria. He has arrived at dawn in front of his beloved Popea's villa. He proclaims his love for her at the beginning until he sees Nero's two guards asleep outside the entrance, suggesting that the emperor is inside and has spent the night with Popea. Oh, how many, pe- how many of us have had a similar experience? Not with guards, but uh, you know. Anyway, so Ottone then sings his despair at this betrayal of love. In other words, it's an ideal Baroque aria. You have your contrast between love and despair at, you know, not, have, mm. not having that love returned. It's an amazing start to the album. There's a gorgeous vibratoless and very characterful playing by Il Pomodoro, by the way, which means it's a really clever name. Pomo is an apple and di oro, gold. So it means golden apple. But if you say it, Together, pomodoro, it means tomato. So it's oh. kind of like a little wordplay. <laughs> right. I like that. Anyway, let's hear um, Orlinsky's entry here. The first time we'll hear him on the album, he's lyrical with a falsetto voice that has many colors available to it. Let's check this out. This is a magical aria. To hear its magic, you have to hear the whole thing. It really does kind of sweep you away. Now, again, those of you who are not familiar with um, Baroque opera, this is very early, so we don't have those gigantic voices yet those will come in the uh really the romantic era and we'll hear one later on in a on a later album today but let's listen to this here we go that go there I think alright so really beautiful this is the part where he's in love of course and then the the mm. nasty part comes later a lot of that is a, a single note and there's a dun 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 I love the way he'll like lean on the um the one on the downbeat it's just really beautiful really just draws me in 
Anyway, the entire first half comes across with a freedom and cheerfulness like you just heard that registers strongly, I think, and put me in an instant good place. I'm in a good place now. I've already forgotten that Erato <laughs> hasn't provided me with the translations in the CD book, but now I just reminded myself again, and I don't know. Back to the CD. Phrasing is sensitive and stirring. At the 5 minute and 22 um, second mark, the words, uh, ma che veggio infelice, but what do I see? Unhappy one, unhappy me, I guess. All that good feeling is gone right at that moment. We're suddenly in the minor key and a more uh, dramatic texture emerges. Il Pomodoro are second to none in making Baroque emotions register, although there are other great groups out there. This is a fantastic performance all around. Orlinsky squeezes out the emotion via his dynamic and phrasing. We heard a bit of that uh, phrasing on that single note. He really made that, you know, really register, I thought. And he makes us feel for this character right at the beginning of the opera. Really amazing. The piece has a lot of contrasting sections. Uh, get the libretto and follow along. You can download it at the Arato <laughs> website if you're streaming, so no problem. This will take you on an emotional journey. Track two is a little confusing in the uh, CD anyway. It is also by Claudio Monteverdi, and it has nothing to do with this opera. It's Canzone a Voce Sola, Voglio di Vito Uscir. It's a song. It's not an opera aria. And it follows without a pause, which kind of made it a little confusing. Am I still hearing hmm. the same piece? But you're not. It's completely different. It's accompanied by strumming string instruments from the guitar family, and it sounds a cheerful piece. But the singer is, is wishing for his death uh, because oh. his love is always running from him. Just find someone else, dude. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> you know. But no, they're always going to kill themselves in Italy. That's just the way it was, I guess, at the time, or at least in opera or song. The text is picturesque. Um, I wish my bones and limbs to crumble into dust and ash and my sobs to die away among the shadows. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of a single time in my life when I've ever felt that way. <laughs> anyway, death alone isn't enough for these jilted lovers. They have their bones have to crumble into ash. There's a sudden pause at the two minute and 30 second mark, after which the singer sings, the tomb is opening, witness now my death. Sounds like uh, every Italian mother there. Um, <laughs> it's a common thing growing up in an Italian family. Your, your, mom, your mom threatening to kill herself because she's overwhelmed by the work you and your brothers and sisters are causing for her. Anyway. Get it all out, Mike. Get it, get it all, all out. out. Yeah, I'm just... Um, <laughs> Still guilt, feeling guilty 40 years later. Anyway, <laughs> 40 plus years later. Jeez. All right, now track three, Johannes Hieronymus Capsburger. This piece seems to be called just Capsburger. It's just labeled after um, the composer's mm. name. And it's from his Libro Quarto di Intavolatura di Chitarone. Chitarone is a big guitar, published in Rome in 1640. The soloist is um, Pomodoro's Miguel Rincon. I can't really tell what the... Um, instrument is it might be a I think it's lute here you think it's a lute I said yeah. arch lute maybe mm. yeah okay it's an instrumental interlude played very gently and sensitively really gorgeous with pretty trills at the end of phrases and setting us up for the famous song that's coming up next um let's play this because I just love the sound of this it's just beautiful
Okay, I'm gonna take that away because I think, uh... People driving in their cars will think we've gone off the air. It's pretty quiet, but uh, you're missing out because it's really beautiful. Oh, by the way, on Italian Mothers, um, if you ever see Fellini's movie Amarcord, there's a fantastic scene where the mother in that movie threatens to poison the entire family. She says she cooks the food. She one day she will have had enough and will poison the entire family. I knew I was in good company then. <laughs> you're making me happy to not be Italian. <laughs> <laughs> there, there are a lot of good things about it, really. But uh, anyway, track four, uh, Giulio Caccini. This is one of my favorite songs. I, I just love it. It's a madrigal, Amarelli Mia Bella. It's one of the most famous songs, art songs, Italian art songs in the world. And it's a song that um, exposes the voice a lot. So it's often used to train voice students for that reason. So if you hear somebody who's just learning how to sing classical music, they'll probably have to sing this song. And it's always wonderful to hear a professional singer because it's so beautiful. Here, it's um, accompanied by an arch lute, I think. And Orlinsky comes in after the 30-second mark, so it has a big... Usually, the singer just comes in right away, but there's a big uh, arch lute introduction or some kind of chitarone introduction here. I'm going to sample the part where Orlinsky comes in because it's just such a great melody and he sings it so beautiful. You can actually see him perform this live on um, YouTube too, but let's hear this. Here we go. stretches that out too just makes it mm. really resonate it's so the words are really beautiful too uh, it's a love song and uh she's encouraging her uh or he i guess in this case it's usually a woman singing this but um is encouraging her lover amaryllis to uh not be shy because she really loves him and she explains at the end if you were to look inside my chest you would see written on my heart amaryllis is my beloved wow they go for high drama in italy okay Girolamo Frescobaldi, track five, aria di Passagalia. So this is a uh, Passagalia. Così mi disprezzate, an aria from, um, from his primo libro d'aria musicali per cantarsi, published in Florence in 1630. And this aria has a bit of a bounce to it. And it's important to remember this is a Passagalia, so the chord pattern will sort of keep cycling around. The text is a bit defiant in tone, and the music seems cheerful in the parts where the singer is telling his love that her looks will fade with time, so she she should make the most of them now and get it on with him, basically. <laughs> German songs just aren't about this. This is why I love Italian songs. There are church bells audible at the end of the track, which I rather enjoyed because it uh, momentarily put me in Italy. You know, they're really clear. I thought they were coming from outside when I heard them. You know, I was like, wow. Anyway, this is a good time to mention that the recording was made in the uh, Sala della Carità in Padova in Italy. The sixth track, Barbara Strozzi, one of the uh, the earliest um, of, um, you can't say earliest, that would be Hildegard, but um, a Baroque era woman composer, rather rare at the time, but she was uh, highly respected by her um, colleagues, a, re a real genius. Lamante Consolato, this is a uh, from her Cantate Aria e Duetti, Opus 2, 
published in Venezia in 1651. So here we get some relief from the betrayed lover. There's a pretty opening by the solo guitar or lute. The um, instrumentation in this work is attractive with the cello or possibly a bass very forward in the performance. Now they would be playing the continuo and this is Il Pomodoro's choice. This is not something that Strozzi herself wrote down. She just wrote the continuo chords. Here the uh, singer is enjoying the delights of being with his lady. The verses start with little movement, then start suddenly dancing in the second half. At the very end, a solo harp comes in to take us to the end. Nice touch there. Wonderful arranging by Il Pomodoro. Track seven. Jeez, we still we have 34 tracks and we're only on track seven. <laughs> What's going on? Francesco Cavalli, Incomprensibili Nume, the not understandable gods. This is from Pompeo Magno, Pompey the Great. It's one of Cavalli's lesser known works. And the opera has some odd sequences in it, such as a ballet for eight lunatics, two driven mad by music, two by art, two by alchemy, and two by poetry. I've been driven mad by three of those four things, I just <laughs> want to say. We're not hearing that here, though. Instead, we have Pompey playing tribute to the god that afforded him many victories, and the instrumentation here features strings at the front and a rich bass. It's a pretty straightforward aria. And Olinsky delivers a strong, confident line here. Track 8, Johann Kasper von Kerl, Sonata for two violins and continuo in F. This is presented as a duel between two virtuoso violinists. It features two violinists of Il Pomodoro. They are Alfia Bakieva and Jonathan Ponet. This starts out rather simply with both violins in harmony. Il Pomodoro set the tempo well here. Uh, it's fairly fast, but not exceedingly so. There's a lot of fluttering between the violins. At the two-minute mark, there's a pretty interlude with the harp. The violins get some spicy passing notes in their lines on occasion. Uh, let's hear them trade some fluttering lines from a section one minute into the piece. big build-up there. Okay, track nine. Claudio Saracini, Udite Lagrimosi Spirti d'Averno, from La Seconda Musica, Venezia 1620. The style of this piece is called a Modo di Accompagnata, which is accompanied monody, and it was a relatively new style when this was composed. It's got a powerful bass note opening the piece, and Orlinsky comes in with some deep coloring in his high voice. He goes up high in the second line of the text, one of the lines in the song, by the way, is, My lady is crueler than hell itself, for a single death is not enough to sate her ruthless will. Mm. You ever gone out with a girl like that? <laughs> not quite that bad, no. Well, <laughs> on this end, no comment. Anyway, track 10 through 13, Carlo Pallavicino, Sinfonia, or Sinfonia. This is from uh, the opera Demetrio, and it's uh, from Venezia, 1666. This is his first opera. So it's the really the overture from the beginning. It's in four movements. The grave, first movement, track 10, starts out with violins, playing a melody, and the rest of the ensemble is answering. 
Um, I marvel at the lightness of the texture and the perfect sense of pacing this ensemble always seems to have. Movement two, Affettuoso. No space between these movements. This has more lift to it with accents on beats one and two of the three beat measure. Really should listen to that again and make sure it's right. Um, track 12 is the third movement, Presto. This takes off in an appealing way. And we're going to sample this because uh, we need a taste. If I play 30 seconds of that, we will have heard the whole track, so I'm going to stop there. All right. Fourth movement, Adagio, back to mournful tones and the strings that spread thickly like Nutella on bread. <laughs> track 14, Pietro Paolo Cappellini. This is a Tarantella. Oh, brings up my uh, Neapolitan roots here. Chi vuol il cor gioisca? Um, this is from uh, Raccolta di Ariete from uh, 1670 to 80. The Tarantella was um, really popular in the 17th century, in the, or the Seicento, as the Italians would say, especially in southern Italy. And this is played with a guitar and lute. There's a keyboard instrument playing the theme. The voice comes in with a lively feel, singing about how to have a joyful heart. The Tarantella rhythm is infectious. You can hear how and why this was so popular. Let's hear a sample of this. This will really get your toes tapping. Ah, so good. They get the uh, feel of that really well. Mm. Tracks 15 through 18, Giovanni Cesare Netti. We're finally hearing a Netti piece. He's kind of the uh, central composer on this album. He was born in Bari in 1649, died in Naples 1686. And this is from his opera Berillo, Act II, Sena, Scena 9. Oh, I'm sorry, that's the uh, character, Berillo. And the opera is called, this is complicated, the opera is called La Fili. And the libretto has a different title. He just renamed the opera. The libretto is La Moglie del Fratello, the, the wife of the brother, Napoli, 1682. So on this album, we hear the entire last scene from act two of the opera, except the final duet. And uh, the shepherd Berillo, the blood brother, I'm not sure what that means. Like they made a pact, I guess, in their brother and sister. Um, the blood brother of Rosetta, who is his future wife, voices his indignation and suffering after learning that his beloved... Fili, who is actually his sister, only has eyes for the hunter Tiersi, who is actually Rosetta's real brother. <laughs> oh boy, it's a soap opera here. <laughs> yeah, soap operas originated in opera, I think. Anyway, the aria Misero Core, that's track 15, starts with a mournful Baroque wind instruments. There's some welcome plucked strings, like a Baroque guitar in the mix too. Orlinsky sets a good mood with his mournful tone and beautiful phrasing. Here, the singer is brokenhearted after losing at love. 
Track 16 is the recitativo in aria Dati Pace Berillo, Si, Si, Si Sciolia, Si. A dramatic banging continuo here, played by few instruments. The singer tells himself that it's time to be contemptuous of the eyes he loved so well. May anger dissolve those shameful snares that love contrived. This is a lively piece with continuo that's practically percussive. Track 17, recitativo, a che mi voi non siete. The singer tells himself these are not his true thoughts. And track 18, beautiful, dolcissime catene. And this is such an Italian theme too. It's an aria. The singer sings of his adoration of the sweetest chains of love. <laughs> a lot of Baroque emotions have been passed through in this rather quick set of recitatives and arias. Lament, anger, longing. This uh, last section has a nice melody, so I'm going to sample this. There goes a, uh, a resting space, so we'll stop there. Just give you a little taste. Track 19, Antonio Sartorio, La Certezza di Sua Fede. This is uh, sung by the character Pompeiano in Act 3, Scene 5 of Antonino e Pompeiano from Venice in 1677. This is an odd aria because it's accompanied only by basso continuo. The continuo instrument is a type of Baroque guitar, possibly an arch lute. It starts expressively, then goes into a dancing rhythm. And it's just odd to hear an opera aria sung with only mm. this continuo accompaniment. Let's uh, sample this when the voice comes in. Incidentally, it occurs to me that uh, the, the tenor doesn't come in in this aria until about two minutes in, so we get a lot of instrumental. <laughs> so I just wanted you to hear the uh, instrumental there. Track 20, Giovanni Cesare Netti, Quanto più la donna in vecchia, sung by Crinalba, who is this uh, old nursemaid, in Act 1, Scene 11 of the opera La D'Amiro. She's suffering from her unrequited love for Squiletto, Elmidoro's servant who is a misogynist humpback, who's sick of her constant advances, rejects her multiple times. Boy, just being, <laughs> being rejected by a hunchback must be the, the ultimate rejection. He describes her as a filthy harpy and the epitome of ugliness. Oh, this is devastating. <laughs> this has some extra percussion instruments at the uh, beginning, and Oleski brings a heavier, slightly comical tone to this aria we're gonna hear another one with this character too but let's just hear a little bit of this one first oh. 
She sounds uh, happy enough here. We get a little interlude, Biagio Marini, La Vecchia Innamorata. So we're staying with this um, old person theme. This is arranged for instrumental ensemble. They try to maintain the theme of the comic tradition in this instrumental setting. In the vocal version, the opening line of the song is, I am loved by a toothless, drooling, hunchbacked, mangy old woman, while a beautiful young girl, gallant and graceful, rejects my advances. Um, <laughs> it's another page out of your love life. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Italian opera tells it like it is, folks. Anyway, let's sample the opening of this. This is this is an instrumental version. It's actually originally a song, but here we go. Yeah, so we're hearing a lot of variety on this album by now. You may mm -hmm. have uh, noticed. I hope I'm putting that across at least. Anyway, Il Pomodoro have arranged this so that the sections are orchestrated differently, making it more ear-catching. You heard two of examples of that, or you know, the first and the second section, and it ends surprisingly calmly. Okay, track 22, we get uh, Giovanni Cesare Netti, the last time we'll hear him on this album. Uh, this is Crinalba again, uh, the old uh, nursemaid. And this is called uh, Son Vecchia Pazienza. And this is a more a sadder aria where she, uh, she uh, sings of how the age has passed that fires her heart. Orlinsky brings a lot of pathos to her interpretation here. Track 23, uh, Giuseppe Antonio Bernabe, a battaglia su mio cuore. Yes. The context for the aria is Solindo, brother of Melissa, has promised his sister's hand to Eugerio, who's the character we're hearing here. And when Eugerio comes to ask Melissa's father, Coraspe, for her hand, he discovers the latter has already promised her to another, Tersace, and is unwilling to change his mind. Eugerio is determined to win his bride by any means, even by going to war, which is, I guess, what you did back in those days. Anyway, the singer is singing that his heart must go to battle in order to win his love's hand. It is orchestrated with trumpets and drums like a martial piece. I feel like the ensemble gets most of the attention for their aggressive martial feel in this piece, though Orlinsky shines here too. Track 24, Adam Jarzebski, Concerto a tre voci e continuo, called Tamburetta. The program creator, Janis Francoise, was keen to include an instrumental piece from the Polish 17th century for a direct link with Orlinsky's background. Orlinsky himself is Polish. Jarebski was a violinist, royal architect, and poet. This piece follows on from the warlike theme of the previous track. It feels a bit martial as well, with its heavy percussion. The violins play the melody. Il Pomodoro consistently bring strong energy to the piece. Tracks 25 through 31 is a cantata for contralto with strings and continuo called Donde 
avien que tutebro di vera joya. And this cantata pays tribute to an aristocratic figure, very fashionable thing to do at the time. It was composed to commemorate the coronation of Maria Beatrice d'Este, also known as Mary of Modena, who was an Italian princess who became Queen Consort of England on 23 April 1685. And basically, the, the piece is about how great she is. <laughs> I wish someone would write a piece about me that's <laughs> like this. Anyway, Track 25 Sinfonia comes across as rather elegant after the previous two martial pieces. After the intro, the music bursts forward into a light, happy, rushing theme. Track 26, Recitativo, Donde Avien Que Tutte Bro Di Vera Gioia. Here the text asks why the waters of the Tiber are exulting with rejoicing. <laughs> Track 27, the aria Nel Anglica Sede Vesilo Di Fede. And in this uh, section, we find out why the Tiber is rejoicing. It's because the pious Maria Beatrice takes her place as queen consort on this day. It's an exultant aria. One thinks the court would have been pleased if Orlinsky had been present at the coronation to perform because he's fantastic here. Track 28, recitativo, Maria Germa Real del Tronco Estense. Here, Mary is directly named and the next aria is set up. Track 29, aria Frema Lerbo Adirato. It follows on from the exultation of the previous aria. All evil powers are vanquished now that a pious person like Maria is crowned queen consort. Track 30, recitativo, Madifati si degni. A brief recitative, inviting scholars to repeat their praise. Track 31, aria senunzia fedel con tromba sonante. The finale is lively. This whole piece keeps the high spirits going. Here the text proclaims the trumpet heralding the melody of glory resounding across the heavens for this event. And the piece just ends on a quick chord. Tracks 32 and 33, Carlo Francesco Polarolo. This is the character Mercurio singing in Act 3, Scene 15 of La Costanza Gelosa Nell'Amori di Cefalo e Procri from 1688 in Verona. It's an operatic aria despite the surprising and rare instrumentation. A note Polarolo left behind clarifies that only the harpsichord accompanies the aria. In this opera, Mercurio hopes in vain for Clori to return his love but she, for her part, desires the shepherd Eliso, who is in fact um, Procri, wife of Cefalo, in disguise. <laughs> My brain hurts. Mm. In the scene before this, Venus, sensitive to Mercurio's lamentations, appears before him and promises that Clori will soon love him. Mercurio then sings this aria suffused with emotions, torn between the memory of his sorrows and love and the hopefulness of his joys to come. So in track 32, we hear Come Alor, Kepudensi, and I like the emphatic nature of the harpsichord concerto in this recitative, where the singer declaims that a smiling day can follow from a rainy dawn, and though he sees clear skies, the singer doesn't believe it. And the second half of this, Son Tanto Avezzo a Piangere, track 33, starts with some wild harpsichord figuration answering the words, I am so used to weeping that I no longer know how to be glad. The harpsichord rather steals the show in this aria, the playing is pretty impressive and steps in effectively for a full ensemble. It's rather an odd aria, especially at the end where we don't get the usual big ending due to the harpsichord's sound. Let's just hear this so that we can hear Orlinsky one more time before we sum up. Tanto avvezzo 
We kind of have that uh, dance rhythm there, and you don't really, you get the sense of it from the harpsichord, but if you had like some percussion or something like that, you get more of it. Anyway, track 34, Sebastiano Moratelli, Lungi, Lungi dal Nostri Cor, La Faretra Smarita, or The Lost Quiver, from 1690. This is Moratelli's only surviving score, written sometime around 1691, to commemorate the wedding of the elector Palatine Johann Wilhelm to Anna Maria Luisa de' Medici. In the aria, Amor has lost his quiver containing his famous arrows, and so sets off around the world in search of them, accompanied by Mercury. Starting in Africa, they proceed to Asia, then on to the Americas. This is surely one of the first musical representations of the New World, before he finally goes to Europe. The continual here is a bowed cello, accompanying with weeping lines as the singer sings that the name of love perishes, though still alive. I assume that Amor finds his quiver at the end of the opera, because then none of us would be able to fall in love, would we? But this aria leaves us in a rather a sad state after a beautiful album. So I'm not mm. going to sample it. I'll leave us with what we had before. I feel like Olinsky and Pomodoro could have sent us off in a more cheerful state. The string playing toward the end is touching. Nevertheless, this is a really fantastic album full of discovery. It's called Beyond, and it explores the word beyond, but I also feel like it explores elements of my life as a middle-aged man. <laughs> so, and I think it might for you too, listener, so give it a listen and uh, have the libretto handy. It's an 82-minute program, and, but it went by pretty fast, I have to say. It's broken up really well with some instrumental pieces as well. Orlinsky has enough subtleties of phrasing and tone to keep the listener engaged, and the program is broken up, as I said, by the occasional instrumental, and Il Pomodoro is just as resourceful as Orlinsky with their approach. The whole program is well put together and interesting all the way through, though I feel like ending on such a down note rather lets the audience down after 82 minutes of really uh, being entertained very well. I was swept away, particularly by the opening eight tracks, and enjoyed the variety of the rest as well. The programs Yanis Francois puts together for Orlinsky are always fascinating, not least for their discovery of new Baroque scores, and there are plenty of those on this album. This album is full of beauty and discovery, and not just because of the vocalist, the playing shares the spotlight, and the music is well performed and orchestrated throughout, and Baroque music fans really shouldn't miss this. And that's all for tonight's podcast. We'll see you next week. I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I took a long time because it's a long album. Anyway, there you go. I enjoyed this a lot more than I expected to when I saw, oh, 80 plus minutes of a countertenor voice. <laughs> I'm going to make it through there. But it was actually really enjoyable. Orlinsky's voice is pure and is full of all kinds of nuances and colors. It's a joy to listen to. And the programming is what really makes it. It's carefully planned and it results in a lot of variety there's different moods and instrumentation, and those nice instrumental works break up the vocal program nicely. And I have to say, the notes are extensive, giving you dramatic context and translation. It really helps you follow along and understand what's going on, but you have to go online. That, yeah, if you don't have said. the CD, <laughs> but yeah. they do have the notes in the CD, so that's right. Yeah, so uh, yeah, really uh, enjoyable and a lot of variety here and to start things out. All right. Well, I feel better now, now that I've gotten that rant off my chest and heard, <laughs> talked about such a great album. Highly recommended. 
And we have another great one coming up, too. This was a real surprise for me. Gabriel Fauré, the cello and piano works. Uh, this is by Xavier Phillips on the cello and uh, Cedric Tibergian on piano on the La Dolce Volta label. So you have two French uh, musicians playing this um, French composer, and uh, boy, this really comes across magically. We start with the uh, cello sonata number one in D minor, opus 109. The first movement is allegro, and I love the spacious room sound achieved on the recording. The cello sounds rich, and the piano registers at a proper level. Uh, Tibergian's playing has always been sensitive in its shaping of melodic lines. I'm hearing Phillips for the first time on this recording, and I'm enjoying his sensitivity to phrasing as well. He also articulates the fleeter, more rhythmic sections with clarity and a sense of forward movement. Faure's contrasting sections manage to be both subtle and obvious in their contrast, in that they're very different, but you almost don't notice the change. In this movement, we have an emphatic and rhythmically marked first theme, and a more flowing song-like second theme. Let's just hear the opening of the uh, first theme. I like the way the recording picks up the attack of the bow on the cello. It's very clearly heard in the final 30 seconds of the movement, too. The second movement, Andante, starts with quiet, crystalline chords from the piano in the opening, and the cello gently brushes out the melody. The interplay between the two players is on display here, with the piano's two-note comments peeking in between the cello's two-note phrases at one point. The cello theme gets more legato and flowing after this. Foray subtly changes the arrangement of the melody and its accompaniment when it repeats, so the material sounds familiar, yet new. Those uh, notes peeking out in the piano are done away with the second time that we hear the theme. There's a real magic to Foray's late music, beautifully captured here, and I like the final iteration of the theme played with a bit of a hush, and the piano playing is in its higher register. The movement comes at the end to a calm, solidly resolved ending. Let's just hear the theme at the opening. of what we love about the cello sound is audible in that um, melody. The third and final movement is uh, an allegro comodo. It starts with flowing arpeggios from the piano, sensitively played. As the cello plays the melody, another sensitively gorgeous one by Faure. I'd say the approach taken by Phillips and Tobergen makes this perhaps the most appealing performance of this work that I've heard. I'm really struck by it. A brief crescendo follows the opening followed by a shy or perhaps understated return to elements of the opening melody. 
as in the previous two movements, Faure's changes of material are subtly taken, and while Phillips and Tabergian distinguish via dynamics and articulation between sections, the shift from one to the next is hardly noticeable. The entire performance gently sweeps us along, and I love how Faure builds tension by sudden upward rising to new keys. The performance here draws attention to these changes, and at the end we get a subtle, gentle decrescendo, followed by a sudden ear-grabbing crescendo to an unexpected final chord. It's just a beautifully judged and uh, layered performance as far as dynamics go. Now the way this um, program goes is we have the two cello sonatas and they kind of act as the bread in this sandwich of these really short pieces. We start with the Elegy in C minor, opus 24 on track 4, an early work starting with quarter note piano chords. The cello is the star here playing the gorgeous throaty melody this is really written for lovers of the cello, as it's down in everyone's favorite range and very song-like. In fact, it may have been originally for violin. I'm not really sure. Phillips is expressive with a rich tone in the first iteration of the melody and a softer tone for its repeat. What I'm saying is that it works really well on the cello. Phillips uh, keeps that softer tone and plays an expressive game, seeming like he'll quickly crescendo, but holds back, biding his time. There eventually is a subtle crescendo on the continuation of the melody, but this is how the pros do it, always building up and subtly subverting expectation. So, music students, give this a listen. We hear the opening melody for the third time, played in its more muted tone. At the three-minute mark, the B section starts. If the opening was sadness at a memory, the middle is more lively, remembering and participating in that memory. Here the piano gets some accompanimental figuration as well. Tabergian always keeping his dynamics well-balanced, even in his fourth days, at 4 minutes and 22 seconds and afterwards. The cello line is thrown into arpeggiated turmoil here, and lands again on the opening melody, uh, this time in the higher register and forte, lamenting to the skies. The piano gets a solo spot at 5 minutes and 30 seconds for the theme's continuation, then the cello takes it over and leads the melody to its end. Tabergian ending with a sensitively played rolled chords, a beautiful piece full of expert playing. Track 5 is a serenade, opus 98. This has a bright rolled chord from Tabergian opening it. Then his staccato accompanies the cello's melody in the higher end. And I'm being drawn to Tabergian's expression in this piece. He's the pianist, he's got the brighter, more ear-grabbing material, while the cello is melodizing with his beautiful tone. Let's uh, hear the opening of this piece. At 1 minute and 24 seconds, the B section starts. It's a little knottier in its more contrapuntal lines, and I like the piano's line at 2 minutes and 7 seconds. Track 6, Sicilienne, Opus 78. Yep, the Sicilian rhythm marked by the cello as the piano plays the 6-8 arpeggiated harmony. He trades with the cello for a brief section. The cello plays the B section of the melody, always with those waves on the ocean type of rhythm. Then the opening melody repeats. At a minute and 45 seconds, the B section of the structure starts, the cello melodizing and the piano playing a lightly dancing accompaniment in the high end. 
As I've said throughout the album, Phillips and Tabergian play with sensitive tone and phrasing and complement each other's playing exceptionally well. It's really the also the, the tone that they get, this really light, almost pastel sort of sound that suits this music so well. The B section is brief in this, and the opening theme repeats after that. Track seven is the very famous Berceuse. This is originally for violin and piano, and I really love this piece. It works well on the uh, cello as well. It achieves a dreamy, gazing at clouds kind of quality here. Let's hear a sample of this very famous piece. So catchy, I know we want to hear more. There's a brief B section where the harmony gets a bit more complex, but we're quickly back to the carefree, dreamy opening. The tone is practically brushed out of the cello's strings with the bow. It's a good tone and works well for this work. Track 8, Romance, Opus 69, starts deep in the cello, a satisfying sound, and rises up in sections. A melody starts in the cello at around the 25 second mark, the cello has the spotlight here with the piano accompanying. It's another pretty foray melody, gently inquiring into its phrasing in the B section. The A section repeats at around the 2 minute and 20 second mark. I like the changing harmony at the end that leads to a coda and a brief departure from the theme from the cello, which ends by reaching for a high note, the opposite of how the piece began. Track 9, Papillon, Opus 77. This has a playful, like, one two rhythm with the third and fourth beats silent on the piano and it accompanies uh the fluttering of the butterfly heard in the cello this is pretty uh appealing and pretty amazing uh, by the cellist here who has to do this um almost perpetual motion sort of rhythm let's listen At the 47 second mark, the cello gets a singable melody, memorable as always with Foray. At a minute and 54 seconds, the butterfly in the cello starts fluttering again. Then at two minutes and eight seconds, catches a breeze via a melody again. There's a fantastic light run toward the end on the cello. Okay, so we then go to the second big work on this program, Cello Sonata Number 2 in G minor, Opus 117. Another late work by Foray. This is a three movement work. The first movement is Allegro, and it has a lovely ascending melody in both piano and cello at the beginning. It's not song-like, but it does stick in the mind. See for yourself.
Yeah, its shape, if not its melody, reminds me a little of the piano trio, which was also a late work. Mm. So he probably had that idea kind of in mind and worked it out in different ways. The work goes on to the next theme seamlessly. There's a bridge to the second theme, but it's more melodic than the opening, so one doesn't notice its function. Soon we're in the second theme. The whole form of this movement is compressed, and for that reason it invites repeated listens to figure out what's going on in the structure. We find ourselves in the development section rather by surprise. There's a nice rising line at 2 minutes and 55 seconds, reminding us of the opening, but it's extended here. By 3 minutes and 30 seconds, the cello melody has really opened up and flows warmly and generously. And by 3 minutes and 50 seconds, we hear a tight rising theme that also recalls the opening. But afterwards, the cello keeps up a singing line with beautiful tone. We hear a sort of coda in the last minute with a brief restatement of the opening theme before heading to the final chord. Track 11, Andante, this is the second movement. And I like the simple opening in the piano here, simply but expressively taken by Tibergian. I would think cellists would love playing this music because once again, Phillips has a singing, melodic line. The movement has a lot of space and is rather regret-filled in tone. The piano actually has a lot of steady quarter-note chords, uh, marking the harmony under the singing cello line. Nice phrase ending in the cello at 2 minutes and 28 seconds on his lowest note. He resumes quietly in an upper range. The piano gets a brief chance in the spotlight at 3 minutes and 20 seconds with a gentle short rising phrase. At 4 minutes and 31 seconds, we suddenly hear the opening theme again. Gorgeous sensitive tone on both cello and piano for the final chord. Third movement is Allegro Vivo, and the piano has an agitated, complex line for the opening, and the cello's theme is naughty as well. Let's listen to this. appealing, but a little more demanding than uh, mm. some of the more melodic works in the middle. The piano is very busy in this movement and has to maintain the accompanimental role as the cello plays. So very impressive playing here by Cedric Tibergian. In the middle section, themes are rather passed around and the sections juxtaposed rather than developed. At least that's my initial impression. This requires more listens, as you can imagine. At the end, the piano gets some expressive and very virtuosic figuration as the cello heats up with some impressive figuration as well until the piece ends on an exciting final chord. And we get an encore, track 13, Après en rêve, opus 7, number 1. This is a transcription of this song by Pablo Casals. Phillips gets to play this as though he's a singer, and the piano accompanies here. We get a sense of the full richness and expression of Phillips's tone. Need I say it again, this encore is sensitively played, and it is fitting encore to this beautifully recorded and performed album. So when I um, talk to um, people about classical music, I say, what's their favorite instrument? Most people will say the piano, but then after that, people will say the cello and not the violin, and, which is interesting because the violin has a lot more music written for it than the cello does. But uh, people just love the cello's, um, the human range of the voice that the cello puts out, and it's really, um, it's got more of a soul to it. 
So for those people, uh, this album can't come more highly recommended. It's a beautifully played and programmed album. The program sandwiching the shorter one movement works in between the two sonatas. It's a good idea, but all these works have an ABA structure, the middle ones, and it gets kind of monotonous to hear one after the other, although the melodies are so beautiful that uh, that probably won't bother you. It's just on the meta level that I noticed that. That bit of programming aside, this is one of the best played cello and piano recordings of Faurier's music that I've really ever heard. The sensitivity of the French musicians Xavier Phillips and Cédric Tibergian make the pastel fin de siècle Frenchness of this music register strongly. It's eminently listenable music, and I think the tone and timbre of the instrument will give you a frisson, which is like a little shudder of pleasure. For me, the two cello sonatas were the highlights, beautifully expressed and contrasted enough in the playing for the sections to register, despite subtlety in the scores and the playing. The playing does pick up a lot of the subtlety of the scores, by the way. The middle works are all gorgeous, and the encore is fine and pleasing. It's a highly recommendable album of Faure's works for cello, and I'll certainly listen to it again and again. Confessed cello lover here yes. myself, and Faure's beautiful melodies are played really gorgeously here. This cello sounds wonderful. It's warm, but at the same time, as you mentioned, the overall tonal balance is kind of like a pastel type of uh, setting that never gets too heavy, even though some of the works do get kind of emotional. Everything is really balanced, phrased wonderfully. These two musicians know and love this music to a deep level, you can tell. And I just found the whole thing really enjoyable. I've heard the two sonatas before, maybe a couple of the middle melodies, but I don't think I've enjoyed them as much and felt uh, as great a continuity in the performance as this recording. So if you're a cello lover like me, you're definitely going to want to sit down on a Sunday afternoon, some coffee or tea, and you're going to have a really beautiful musical experience with this one. I might do that next Sunday, in fact. Now you've yeah. kind of, you've given me that idea. Yeah. Okay, so our third recording, I had to program this. It's called Infinite Voyage. So here we go with our infinite <laughs> theme again, Beyond Infinite. Okay. Maybe that's our title, Beyond Infinite. <laughs> we'll have to see. What's that? I don't know. It's something new. Anyway, this is by the Emerson String Quartet. They're the main performers on this. And it also has Barbara Hannigan as soprano and Bertrand Chamayou, the pianist. Mm. And this is on the Alpha label. The Emerson String Quartet are Eugene Drucker, Philip Setzer, Lawrence Dutton, and Paul Watkins. And they have announced that this is the final album of their 47-year career, which started oh. in 1976. And I remember hearing about them, yeah, shortly after college, I would say, maybe in the late 80s or early 90s. And they've been with me for a lot of my classical music listening life. So it's just another sad mm. moment where we know we won't be hearing from them again. So the works on this album are unified by the expression of unfulfilled, perhaps unfulfillable yearning, as well as the composer's absolute commitment to their aesthetic ideals. And I think that's kind of the um, idea that the Emerson String Quartet wanted to leave behind with this album. And it is a powerful one. It's a bit of an intellectual listen, too. And it's, it's a little demanding, mm. but they want to leave us with something that uh, we're going to be working on, I think, for the rest of our lives <laughs> since we don't have them anymore. So we could keep thinking about them and puzzling through. This is something I enjoy doing. I'm still doing it with the late uh, Beethoven string quartets and the late piano sonatas. They're kind of hard nuts to crack, as are the works on this album, too. We start with a composer who really should be more well-known. Somehow he doesn't get as much 
attention as others from his era. Paul Hindemith, German composer. And this is a little known work by him called Melancholy, Opus 13. It's a set of poems by Christian Morgenstern. Uh, Hindemith dedicated the song cycle to his friend Karl Köhler, whose death on the Western Front in 1918, that's World War I, came as a great shock. The first um, song, Die Primeln Blühen und Grüßen, The Primroses Bloom and Greet Me, has an ABA form and has a final refusal to believe in the promise of a better future in the central section. <laughs> Boy, music for our times, huh? Anyway. This has a real German modernist sound to it. It's very spare string quartet accompaniment and often unrelated to what the soprano is singing. Yes, we're hearing Barbara Hannigan on this track. It comments on the music sort of like a Schoenberg work. I'm rather a fan of Barbara Hannigan's adventurousness and really enjoy her performance in this little performed work. Notice the dotted rhythm in the vocal at the beginning and third verse. It gives the music a childlike feel despite all of the emptiness and harshness in the music emerson quartet play with a stark feeling here yeah don't don't use this to wake up to in the morning you'll just put you in a bad <laughs> mood for the rest of the day this is evening music by all means but probably not just before bed music either i don't know track two nebelweben which means sort of fog weaving and the hmm. booklet notes by nicholas derny offer the image of strings being like a weaver's shuttle with which the poem weaves the fog that poisons the air, while the instrumental postlude seems to say that nothing can disperse it. And the image that the booklet gives is of um, mustard gas, because this is a World War I work. So you can kind of think of that uh, poison, the fog mm. poisoning the air as mustard gas. The repeating pattern in the middle strings does have a weaving quality to it. And I'm noticing now the clarity and upfrontness with which Hannigan's voice is recorded. We hear every nuance of her voice as well as its tone. Let's uh, listen to the opening of this with the strings weaving this um, sort of atmosphere. goes into a lot of tonal areas. <laughs> the Emerson remain expressive and attention-grabbing, especially when Hannigan isn't singing. They have the last 40 seconds of the piece to themselves, and each member stands out in this complex score. Track three, a Dunkler Tropfe, Dark Drop. This has a dotted rhythm with which the soprano and first violin mark the tread of a funeral march. <laughs> this is not a cheerful <laughs> album. The dry pizzicatos are the dark drop of death falling into the cup of life. Uh, the Emersons manage a unique sound on the pizzicato here. And actually, it sounds like the strings are being sharply but quietly bowed in a staccato fashion at first. And this changes when we get to the line, Vils du den Claren Wein, uh, in the second verse to actual pizzicato. Let's uh, listen to the opening of this. It's pretty interesting.
Yeah, hypnotic. Mm. And I think they're bouncing the bows off the strings at the beginning there. It, it is pizzicato later, though. Uh, Hannigan expresses the second verse in a slightly wavery, drunken-sounding voice. So she doesn't want to be comical. She wants to contrast the middle verse with the light dread to the vocal in the first and third verses. The fourth um, track and final uh, song in this um, set is called Traumwald. It's a dream forest, and harmonies accompany the bird as it goes to sleep on its branch. Uh, the harmonies are Tristan-esque, so meaning from Wagner's opera Tristan und Isolde, which influenced so much music after it came out. There's some beautiful glissandos in the vocal and strings during the work. The voice occasionally slides both upward and downward between notes. It has a kind of a trick mirror effect where one isn't sure if what one is hearing is real, and this is appropriate for a piece about dreams. I wonder how much of this is in the score and how much is interpretation. Let's uh, hear um, sort of towards, this is in the middle really, Let's see what you think. Luscious singing there, too. I just love her voice and her whole approach. This is a pretty unique piece. These are all striking performances of a striking early 20th century German work. Then in tracks five and six, we have Alban Berg's String Quartet, Opus 3. This work has a sense of direction to it without needing to use tonality for that purpose. <laughs> so there's no tonality <laughs> in this work. It's a movement that's aware of sonata form, this first movement. It's a two-movement work. And uh, Berg seemed to favor the two-movement work. He did this a lot, including in his violin concerto. This starts dramatically with perhaps the second violin playing a theme that cuts right away like a knife blade. He really wants to get your attention here. Wisps of different lines in the strings follow, all oddly together, but off in their own directions. The piece brings a sense of urgent drama. Oddly, we hear in the first minute some of those glissandos between notes that we actually heard in the last... Hindemith song too. Let's uh, sample the beginning and be ready to sit up in your seat when you hear this. sets sort of a stark atmosphere. Uh, the constant return of the opening sort of cutting gesture -da 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 -da, uh, makes the piece cohesive. The theme acts as a signpost. Meanwhile, there are lots of colorings throughout the movement via bowing techniques like sul ponticello. The piece really is eerie and occasionally wild. It portrays a kind of extreme duress. 
the Emerson makes sure we hear all of the familiar signposts by applying subtle nudges to them. The nods towards sonata form in having familiar material repeat is helpful in following the movement. The Emersons are highly attentive to the sudden changes of dynamic and mood. The piece ends rather quietly and thinly. The movement as a whole puts me in mind of bare winter branches. And the second movement and final movement of the string quartet, Messica Fiertel, uh, revisits the rondo, although I couldn't really work out what was a rondo about this, um, with some glances toward Tristan und Isolde. Uh, it has quite a dramatic opening, which we should hear. Let's listen to this. I think someone should use that as their ringtone on their phone. <laughs> really startle everyone. The rest of the quartet come in really aggressively, fortissimo lines ensue. Things calm down by the minute and three second mark as the four lines seem to wind down so they kind of expend their energy. The violins pick up in energy and play melodic themes without harmony to blend into. This quieter section is a bit polyphonic, with brief swooping gestures sounding at different times in all four voices. At 3 minutes and 31 seconds, a new section suddenly and unexpectedly starts with a loud attack that dies down and then gets rather histrionic again. And there are some sudden rises and falls of energy. Yeah, histrionic is a good word to describe <laughs> a lot of the uh, dodecaphonic composers like Berg and Arnold Schoenberg and people like that. They really go for these really intense emotions. Here, the Emerson are really on top of every nuance in this difficult score. By the fifth minute, we seem to be in a section where the theme keeps trying to rise. Some eerie but very cool harmonics are heard in the seventh minute, and the effects flow by at this point, sul ponticello, pizzicato, and probably some others. By the last two minutes, the piece has settled into familiar thematic material, and the material head to a really harsh-sounding last chord that actually is pretty thrilling. I have to play this for you. And the audience gets up and applauds. <laughs> I think they're too deep in shock to actually applaud the ending of that. I have to say that this piece left me exhausted, and I guess it should. I think that's its intention. It's an excellent performance, though. Track 7, Ernest Chanson, Chanson Perpetuelle, Opus 37. And uh, in this piece, which is rather kind of on the more romantic side of modernism, it's, it's a French piece, the narrator has been abandoned by her lover and is preparing for suicide. Oh, another uh, happy moment. <laughs> Maybe we should go for some death theme for the title. I don't know. This was actually written during a happy time in Chasson's life. Uh, he said, I can feel the pain that I would have were I to find myself in this situation, and I feel it all the more 
the happier I am. <laughs> okay, go figure. Mm. Artists, huh? Anyway, here we hear uh, Bertrand Chamayou on the piano for the only time on this album. And he joins Barbara Hannigan and the Emerson String Quartet for this piece. I've rarely heard Hannigan in straight melodic music like this. And she has a lovely tone and vibrato for it. She really could have been like a big time opera singer in Verdi and Puccini if she wanted to be. The piece is lighter than what we've heard, sensitively performed, and touching. And that's really what it comes down to. We're hearing her just desperate emotions. The piece moves in to different sections every few verses. It's a nice approach. The poem is very sad as the woman moves towards suicide at the end because her lover left her. Despite the early modernist romantic coloring, the piece is emotionally devastating. Uh, this ha is a sensitively done performance, beautifully balanced on the recording, with Hannigan's vocal nuances fully audible. Tracks 8 through 11, Arnold Schoenberg, String Quartet Number 2, and F-sharp minor, Opus 10. Now, this is probably the first string quartet to ever have a vocalist in it. She comes in in the third and fourth yeah. movements. Yeah, kind of uh, following, I guess, Beethoven and I guess Mahler and his, or his orchestra works there. It was composed uh, when Schoenberg was on the cusp of his free atonal period, which is still 10 years away from serialism. So this is not 12-tone music. But to be honest, I really think that Schoenberg's like atonal music is a lot naughtier and rougher going. That is 12-tone music. <laughs> it's the 12-tone music that really got, made him uh, notorious. But give a listen to this. There was a riot at the world premiere of this piece. Uh, the Emersons say that the piece uh, gives them the sensation of embarking on a voyage into previously uncharted territory. And the sung lyrics hint at that as well at the end. I'll talk about that in Movement 4. The piece was written around the time the painter Richard Gerstel, who lived on the same street in Vienna as the Schoenbergs, absconded with Schoenberg's wife for a few days. Uh, she came back, but the anxiety their separation caused may have had something to do with the new departure taken in the work's final sections. Gerstel, the painter, wound up hanging himself later that year. <laughs> oh, boy. Usually it's the other way around, right? Right. <laughs> anyway, movement one. This is track eight, uh, Messig. This starts with some attractive harmony that rather quickly goes sour, then reaches a more extreme emotional peak. The overall feel of this is romantic with heightened emotion. As always with Schoenberg, themes aren't repeated, so one has to grab onto it when one is hearing it. Uh, this is important to do, because once we get to movement three, we'll be hearing some of them again. I just said he doesn't repeat them, but in movement three he will, but that's a long time from now. After a brief otherworldly Sul Ponticello line, we come right back to a romantic melody after the 2 minute and 12 second mark. Schoenberg always manages to imbue his early music with a feeling of people alone, isolated from each other, and that's what I'm getting from this movement. There's a lot of romantic existential anguish and certain instruments coming to the fore to play a melody isolated from the ensemble, who are playing something else. There's a calm ending on a desolate chord. Track 2, labeled Serrash. The cello starts this on a repeating note, and the others play quickly moving lines, not necessarily blending with each other. Each player has an isolated line. They come together on chords, then are off again on wild departures. Music like this, it's not like Mahler, but it, this kind of angst that it gives off really does kind of express something that's really come into our times and has really strengthened over the last... 100 years. Let's listen to the opening of this second movement. Mm -hmm. 
There are Sul Ponticello passages and tipsy, unsteady lines. You can listen to that at 1 minute and 50 seconds. The Emersons are impressive in their execution here. At around the 2 minute and 10 second mark, there's a sudden retard, followed by a quick accelerando that really caught my ear for how well done it was in this performance. Careful passages are usually followed by scurrying in different directions by the ensemble. At the 3 minutes and 45 second mark, there's a big unison statement that falls into a decadent memory of a Viennese dance afterwards. Of course, this is only momentary. The episodic nature of this movement continues with a sudden, quick-moving section, followed by several other quick changes. In the last 30 seconds, we're hearing a decadent ballroom dance, followed by an aggressive line that winds up being inconclusive, not landing anywhere in particular. Now I'm saying a ballroom dance. I don't. It's not a waltz, but it's Viennese. It's it just sounds like something else. Track ten. Now we get to the movements with the vocals. The uh, third movement is called litany, which means litany. It's a set of variations citing motives taken from the preceding movements. You might not notice them though because of the singing above it. The poem is about wishing to renounce love in order to find peace. Boy, I relate to this too. <laughs> I tell you, this really is a, a night of, uh, of Mike emotions on the uh, classical end. It's a little psychological analysis. In yeah. Boy, we're, we're really here. getting a psychological analysis of me, I think, in this episode <laughs> rather than of the music. But anyway, this starts in the viola and the rest of the ensemble come in in lamenting tone. This, I'm really a happy guy, though. I mean, I'm not like <laughs> as sad as this music sounds. Anyway, the soprano eventually comes in with the line, Tief Easter Trauer, which it's though it's by Stefan George, brings to mind uh, Mahler's um, Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen, where he talks about being lost to the world. Oh no, Tief Easter Trauer reminds me of Nietzsche, actually. It's in uh, Symphony Number no. 3 by Mahler. Anyway, Hannigan is in full tone again here, hitting a dramatic high note on the word voll in voll nur die Qual, uh, which means full only the torment. If you're following along with the text, you'll hear that. The attention is on her, but when she stops singing at intervals, you notice the strange wispy lines in the quartet accompanying her. She's recorded up front again, with the quartet fully audible, but noticeably in the back. Again, each verse is episodic in the string quartet part. By the end, the movement is going for the sopranically histrionic. There's a new word, sopranically <laughs> histrionic, <laughs> reaching an amazing high note on the word Liebe, love, in the line Take love from me, or ni mir di liba. That's a, quite a note. Big wow. After that, we get some morose lines from the quartet members to end the movement. And then my favorite movement, this has always fascinated me, is called Entrückung, which means ecstasy or transcendence or something along those lines. This movement has no key, unlike the other ones, and indeed embodies the opening line, Ich fühle Luft von anderen Planeten which means, I feel air from another planet, from Stefan George's poem. It does end in an F-sharp major chord, though. The movement is about a sort of ascension above and beyond the ultimate cloud. It starts quietly and mysteriously, kind of like something space-age, like one of those movie computers from the 1960s beeping. But of course, this was composed 50 years earlier than those movie scores were. Is Schoenberg, um representing the airless environment of space here. Let's listen to this so you can get a feeling for the strangeness of this music. Now you got to think, did I write the year of this down? Let me see. 
No, I didn't. But it's around 1910, 1920 or so. Let's listen. A big atmospheric opening there. There's a mysterious lead up to the unknown, and I get a sense that when we hear the chords of the work trying to get its bearings, we hear the famous line, Ich fühle Luft von anderen Planeten. At 2 minutes and 15 seconds, they're sung with a sense of frozen wonder, is how I describe it. Uh, listen for yourself and see what you think. Very mysterious. I kind of think of those words as, um, as I mentioned when I was talking in the earlier movement, as a kind of a companion to uh, Friedrich Ruchert's Ich bin der Welt abhanden bekommen. I have become unmoored from or detached from or lost to the world. It's a, it's a hard translation. Except here it feels like the vocalist has actually left the earth and not just kind of lost touch with it or stopped caring about it. One does wonder what was in the air in Vienna at the time with these types of poems being set. There are a lot of them from this era that have this sort of feel to them. I like the chromatic dropping playing of the quartet in this movement too. The vocal does pick up toward the middle, going for some fortissimo lines, but the mystery returns. The Emerson makes sure we hear the downward curling chromatic lines, which really grab my ear. They're so mysterious sounding. I like the feeling given to the final chord as well, as though we're continuing on our journey through the universe. It's a great chord for the Emersons to end their recording career on. I used the word histrionic a few times, but I want to say that while performances could easily descend into straight histrionics, this one does not due to Barbara Hannigan's shadings and the careful attention to each phrase of the poem. For that reason and the Emersons' way with the material, I'd say this is one of my favorite performances of this work, maybe my favorite one, but there are a few others that I have to hear again. It's adventurous listening, but put yourself back in college when you were in search of the new, and you'll get it. This really has that feeling of like discovering something uh, new, if you could, especially if you could put yourself back into the year 1920 or so and kind of imagine that music like this was being made then. This piece sounds forever new. So I'd like to say this is a triumphant final album for the Emerson String Quartet with the assistance of some friends. It makes a big existential statement in programming four pieces that are striving for the new. They've left us with a program to ponder for the next uh, few 
decades for the rest of our life i don't know this is some emotionally and intellectually heavy music but it's not the sort of thing that should have listeners running to the exits the emerson string quartet excel in this very difficult music and do a lot to highlight the form and themes and how they develop it's sad to say goodbye to such an adventurous ensemble but this is a fantastic send-off Barbara Hannigan is beautifully recorded and sings with all of the artistry I've come to love about this soprano. She's the kind of artist that through her artistry can make you engage with difficult music. So she's a real gift to this type of music because her interpretations are so compelling. She has real presence in her voice as well as in stage presence. And I just want to say to the Emerson String Quartet, thank you for all of the years and all the wonderful recordings. Well, there's a lot of musical meat to chew on and digest on this recording. <laughs> there certainly is. You know, Hindemith's music I came to at an early age because I played his trumpet concerto when I was young. So I got an idea for his use of harmony. This is kind of different, though. This has a real eerie atmosphere and sparseness to it. But that draws you into the nuanced vocals. And so it's kind of mesmerizing in its own little eerie way. Uh, the Berg, that was, uh, I'm kind of glad it was only two movements. It's a bit angsty overall. It has some surprises in it, some unusual string tones, kind of adventurous. And then we have that little kind of palate cleanse in the middle with the chanson uh, right. romanticism. That's kind of nice. I like the huge vocal climax in that one. And then the dark string ending. And Schoenberg, <laughs> we just heard Schoenberg. Was it last episode? It was two weeks, <laughs> two ago. weeks ago. Yeah. yeah um, it seems like last week because it just stays with you. It's angsty, <laughs> but in spots it's kind of more tonally rooted. Like as you explained, I've read it's from a turbulent time in his life there. Right. Uh, so it's uh, interesting. And as you say, you have to listen <laughs> carefully because you don't hear things you know, repeated for you. So you have to give your full attention. Yeah, I just want to say that I like the Beethoven, late Beethoven string quartets. I really like the four Schoenberg quartets a lot too. I don't know if like is the right word, but I'm just sort of drawn to them. I'm fascinated by them because they kind of reward many repeated listenings. There's a lot in them. So make sure you're in the right musical mood to sit down and pay attention through this one. That said, the recording itself is very tonally rich. And mm. I thought that especially the low strings really resonate in the sonics here so it's kind of a good audio experience other than the musical one as well all right and there you go classical music we are in outer space now and now we're gonna go to a an album with a title a j the jazz albums the first one has another sort of one of these titles that we're talking about here well, we're gonna come back to earth and specifically we're gonna have a european tour in jazz tonight and we're gonna start out in germany with longing yeah, maybe we're longing for Earth. You don't really know. Maybe after that last album. This is on the Jazz Jazz label by pianist Martin Sasse. And Sasse's released over 10 albums under his own name. And this Martin Sasse trio we're going to hear here has been one of his main outlets for almost 30 years. Their first album was Here We Come back in 2000. And guests on later recordings included saxophonists Vincent Herring, Steve Grossman, and Charlie Mariano, as well as guitarist Peter Bernstein. And Sasse teaches at the Institute for Media and Music at the Robert Schumann University of Applied Sciences, Dusseldorf. And we heard him previously in episode 90, that was called Mostly Made in Germany, with vibraphonist Matthias Strucken. No, I didn't realize that, and I forgot. Yeah, yeah on his recording, I Loves You Porgy. 
And impressed with his playing there, I've always been on the lookout for a new recording from him. And here we are with this trio recording. Longing, Sase on piano, Martin Jaganowski on bass, and Joost van Schaik on drums. Yeah, and I noticed also a CD is available of this, as with I Love Zuborgi, which I have, actually. Right. Yeah, that was a really fun recording. Yeah. This one gets underway with the tune How Little We Know, Hoagie Carmichael. Words by Johnny Mercer. We won't hear them here, though. Interestingly, from the 1944 film To Have and Have Not, where it's performed by Lauren Bacall. How about that? (laughs) It's a 32-measure melody with two 16-measure halves that have different endings. Check out the great easy swing feel and the varied syncopated bass and left-hand piano figures going on under the melody. As a matter of fact, let's take a little bit of a listen. Sasek gets a solo from there over those bass half notes from Jaganowski. And then uh, he gets the walking bass going for a really nice swing feel. Sasek's got great melodies with a light touch and a punchy left hand. I think we can put him into that classy category of mm. pianists. And Jaganowski gets a woody and melodic bass solo with a happy energy too. And then Sasse trades eights with Van Schaik to get a little tight drum action in. And don't miss the little Oscar Peterson flair on one of those exchanges. Once more around the melody to a fun rolling ending. Track two is a Sasse original groovy waltz. And as named, a groovy waltz with bluesy tinges. The melody has kind of an eight measure A section twice a contrasting 16-measure middle section, and a final A section. Sussie takes a tasty and sparse solo start, so let's check out some of his improvising here once he gets going. Thank you. 
effortless playing into some bluesy fun there. Chakanovsky has a solo with a cool gliss in it and clean articulation before they get back to another round of the melody with some fun vamping and drums at the end. Track three, the title track, Longing, another Sase original. Chaganovsky gets to take charge here to start this one with melodic ringing bass over the even Latin clicky groove. As a matter of fact, let's hear him do a little bit of that. From there, Sase takes over with a longer melody exposition. It's AABA form with 16 measure sections. And then he has an improvised solo with some impressive zippy lines mixed in. He takes it through the melody sections again. And Jaganowski's back with the ending section like the opening to finish it up. Track four, another Sase original, Never to Return. A longing ballad melody. It's an AABA form. Listen for the little extra harmonies on the second A section. His solo here has pretty trickles of notes and ripples of high register lines before returning to the melody. Subtle and very pretty. Track five, The Soul of Jazz, also a Sase original. A funky fun AABA 32 measure minor bluesy melody here. The bass and drums stop up on the A sections and keep it walking for contrast on the B. Let's hear Sase have some fun on the second half of his solo, starting around two minutes in. There, Jaganowski gets a go on bass too before the sassy melody returns to a rolling ending. Track six is called Green and Blue, another sassy original. It's a sensitive waltzing ballad. There's an eight measure intro with an ostinato arpeggio joined by bass. The 32 measure melody has short ringing piano phrases over delicate brushwork by Van Schaik. And Jaganowski solos first with ringing phrases. Sassy plays trickling phrases in his solo on this one, building into longer connected ideas with attention to dynamics and a final melody exposition. Track seven, another Sassy original, Swing, Swing, Swing. 
And as titled, A Fun, Easy, Swinging Melody, it's a 32-measure one with cool little bouncy left-hand piano chord ideas. Jakonowski gets the B section to himself, and another effortlessly swinging solo from Sasse with lots of playful lines on this one with a big tremolo and trilling climax. Well, I think we just got to hear some of this because it's so cool too. So let's check out some of that. I could do that. <laughs> I like the sound he gets in the high end. It's really pretty. Yeah, really yeah. nice. Jakonowski takes a turn too, and Van Shake gets a little section of fun before the ending. Track eight, another Sassy original, Bennett's Blues, a fun 12-bar blues with bass and drums on stop time under the piano melody. After the customary two times through, Sassy's off on a bluesy jaunt over light cymbal work from Van Shake. His tasty little figures and low register stabs are a lot of fun. They work it up into more of a driving swing, and Sasse lets it all hang out on this one. Jakonowski gets the bass blues, too, with some cool double stops in his solo on the way. And then Sasse and Van Shake trade fours for a few rounds before getting back to the melody for a couple final runs. A standard lover man, Jimmy Davis and Rem Ramirez. Sassy starts this one solo and rubato with lots of pretty harmonic decoration. Let's hear him get this one started. Bass and drums will join in about halfway through the tune for the start of Sasse's improvisations. Nice ringing bass from Jakonowski underneath Sasse's trickles and bluesy licks that continue to the final phrase. And the recording wraps up with another Sasse original, With You, track 10. It's a fast minor AABA 32 measure tune, evocative of a lot of hard bop melodies. And Sasse's really swinging on this one at high speed. So let's get a final taste of his playing just before two minutes in this tune. Mm -hmm. 
Oh, yeah. Check out those chords. Wow. <laughs> well, Vincic gets a solo from after that with some nice sounding toms on the drums into a final run of the melody and a rumbling piano and drum finish. And that's the recording. Great grooves and lots of effortless swinging here. No weak tracks on this one and a lot of variety in compositions that show off all the things Sasse can do so well on the piano. Melodic and fun solos, touches of old-time piano greats with great left-hand rhythms and punchy chords. Some tender and rich ballad work on here, too. Chaganovsky sets great grooves and supplies ringing melodic solos on the bass, and Vanchek is light and subtle or hard-driving when it's called for. Piano Trio fans are guaranteed to love this recording. Yeah, I really don't blame you for uh, sampling so many of these tracks. <laughs> yeah. You almost got to want to get all the styles in, you know, and they're yeah. all really interesting. He's got a lot of different uh, approaches. Uh, he fits comfortably into all of those styles. I think I particularly like the opening track, How Little We Know. I mean, it caught my attention right away. Mm. And he's got a good, really bluesy feel on the blues tracks, notably Green and Blue and Swing, Swing, Swing. And I liked his sensitive phrasing and touch and never to return. But I just go through all the tracks again. I mean, why not? The rest of the trio get chances to solo and acquit themselves well. The bass solos are melodic and the drums get a few different approaches. And uh, they get more and more showy on the solos, the drums, as the album goes on. I thought that was pretty interesting. Right. Like he was coming to a slow boil <laughs> through each track <laughs> uh, with the splashiest one heard at the end of the last track. There are a lot of familiar styles on the album, and that makes it a comfortable, enjoyable listen and uh, surprising too, really. I just love the playing all the way through. Yeah, really good one. A pianist that I really love to listen to and uh, yeah, always looking for something new with him on it. All right, the next stop on the European tour is France, where at least that's where he hails from. Speaking of, vibraphonist Simone Moulier and his new recording Inception on the Fresh Sound label. Well, after studying classical percussion in France, Moulier went on to complete an undergraduate degree from Berklee College of Music, where he studied with trumpeter Darren Barrett and followed up with a master's degree from the Thelonious Monk Institute, where he was mentored by Quincy Jones, Herbie Hancock, Wayne Shorter, and Jimmy Heath, among others. That's a pretty good education there. He's played with Herbie Hancock, Buster Williams, Gerald Clayton, Terry Lynn Carrington, Miguel Zenon, and others. And he got a Grammy Award as an arranger on the Terry Lynn Carrington's New Standards Volume 1. And he was also named Rising Star Vibraphone Player of the Year in Downbeat's 71st Annual Critics Poll. He's got a unique approach to vibraphone playing, and we've heard him before, going back to Episode 29, Europa, Europa. That was his recording Countdown, also on the Fresh Sound label. And he's already had another recording out this year in February, Isla. We didn't feature that one. And there's also a spirit song from 2020. So on this one, we've got trio format. And along with Moulier on vibraphone, we've got Luca Alemano on bass and Jungkook Kim on drums. So the previous recording, Isla, had piano on it as well. And here, in just a trio format, I think it's more interesting because sometimes the piano and vibes overlap in the same register tonally. It's an odd combination. Yeah, mm. so they have to be kind of conscious of doing different things or switching off. So on this one, we're going to get to hear him doing all of the harmonic duties in very interesting ways. And it's mainly a selection of compositions from some of the great composers among jazz musicians in the post-bop period. And we're going to start out with Horace Silver's Ekero, which is Horace spelled backwards. 
This comes from 1952's New Faces, New Sounds, his first studio recording, and also the Horace Silver Trio with Art Blakey, 1956, which is really the first Jazz Messengers recording. So a lot of fans will know this one. The harmony is interesting with a lot of sharp nine chords. He does something different with the melody than the Messengers version, which comes straight in on Silver's 32-measure melody. Here, Moulier gives it an original 16-measure bouncy vamp intro, and then uses that same idea for the final eight measures instead of Silver's melody ending. Then he goes back through to that point again before continuing on to his improvisations. Let's hear this get going. Yeah, I love that little run he adds there in the 13th measure of the melody. Well, his solo is really swinging with snappy melody lines on this one, but he inserts piano-like chords in spots. There's a lot of good interaction with Alamano's bass after that. They work a vamp for a while for Kim to work around the drum kit, then bounce it into the intro idea to bring back the first part of the melody into some more bluesy improvisations from Moulier along the way. Right from the first tune, you can hear his unique kind of soft muted tone and also his habit of vocalizing along with his play. Well, he, he does that in every track. Yeah. He just <laughs> sings along as he plays. Yeah. Right. Track two, McCoy Tyner's Inception, the title track from his debut album from 1962. It starts much in the spirit of the original, a four-measure intro, and around the 20-measure run-filled melody twice. Alamano drops out, leaving Moulier just over drums to get his solo going, and he's really letting the mallets fly on this one. Let's check out some of his improvisations from around 38 seconds. Bass joins back in and continues on working into some chord lines with gaps for Kim to fill around in the drums, bringing them back to another run through the melody and some more energetic vibe improvisations and vamping before the end. Track 3, Desafinado, everyone knows this one, Antonio Carlos Hobim from 1959 originally. Stan Getz and Charlie Bird had a hit with it from Jazz Samba in 1962 and of course the Getz Gilberto recording of 1964. 
Kim gets it started with a clicky groove, and Moulier has a cute, muted little descending glissando before adding some bouncy chords and little trills on the 20-measure intro. He takes the melody, adding tasty little fills. It's kind of a bossa nova after a strong cup of Brazilian coffee. Not quite right. breezy and relaxed here. Uh, a little return to the intro vamp, and then Mulia is off soloing. He keeps it melodic and spirited before getting back to a bit of the melody and the vamp and some final improvisations and grooving. Track four, Charles Mingus, Peggy's Blue Skylight, first recorded on Tonight at Noon, released in 1964, but there are a few other versions out there. It's also on Mingus's At Carnegie Hall recording. It's a really nice melody in an AABC structure. The A section is 16 measures with eight measure B and C sections, and the C is kind of similar to the A. The bass and drums stop up under the vibes figures, and there's some nice unison bass and vibes figures as well. The tempo is moving right along, and it swings hard. Mulia's solo really swings and has a lot of speedy lines as well as moving chord lines inserted. Uh, Alamano gets a bass solo on this one, so let's hear some of his playing on his solo. back in full force to trade some eights with Kim on the drums before having another go through the melody with a few fun change-ups and a bouncy vamped outro. Track 5, Billy Strayhorn's Lush Life, first recorded by Duke Ellington and his orchestra in 1948. A solo vibes take on this classic. It's rubato, but with motion. He's tracing out the melody shape with improvisation, and his vocalizations really come through when he's playing all by himself. Mm. It sounds like he even gets a little whistling in there when he gets up high at the end. I know you want to hear this, so let's check out the ending of this one. Track six, Miles Davis's Prancing, that's P-F-R-A-N-C-I-N-G, a 12-bar blues from Someday My Prince Will Come, 
1961 album. The tempo here is two espresso shots faster than the original. <laughs> After a couple <laughs> rounds of the 12-bar blues melody, Moulier adds something new of his own with the 16-measure modal harmony section with ringing chords and a rhythmic change-up in the drums. Then it's back to swinging and the blues for vibes solo with a lot of exciting runs and rhythmic figures. Alamano gets a bluesy bass solo with snappy lines and they bring back the modal section before a couple final melody runs. Track 7, Wayne Shorter's Lost from The Soothsayer, recorded in 1965 but not released until 1979 on Blue Note. This keeps the mood of the original waltzing tune. The beginning harmonies are pretty cool. They go from A major 7 to A minor major 7, A6 over 9, and back to the A minor major 7. It sounds really great on Moulier's vibes. There's a lot to explore in the harmonies in this tune, and Moulier's solo is an interesting one. Alamano gets a bass solo on this one as well. Track 8. Well, fittingly, to have a French composition here, Michel Legrand's You Must Believe in Spring. I believe it's originally sung by Jacques Revault in 1967. Uh, this was a favorite of Bill Evans and the title track of his 1977 album. He also recorded it with Tony Bennett. Usually this is done as a ballad, but not here. They give it a medium swing. It's a pretty melody, and it's fun to listen to how Moulier harmonizes it with chords while adding little adornments. Exciting vibes and a melodic bass solo on this one, too. After the melody returns, Moulier still has some exciting improvised ideas to get out before the ending comes. We're going to end up track 9, R.C. So Moulier original. That's not R.C. like in the cola. Do you remember that stuff? Oh, yeah, Royal Crown, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, here, mm-hmm. RC stands for rhythm changes, right? So oh, okay. I got rhythm. And uh, actually, I think they had some cola, but it was jolt cola. Jolt cola. This <laughs> <one>. <laughs> As you'll hear in a moment. Uh, Mouillet right. has his own original melody over the rhythm changes pattern with a lot of fills from Kim and then launches into a super speedy solo. Well, let's hear this one get going. Shot, might get hit with a mallet <laughs> flying yeah. really fast through the air. Well, he plays on and on, never running out of ideas at high speed. And Kim gets a shot on the drums with some more subtle snare work in contrast to all the busyness. And so it's a little spot for him to shine. Let's hear a little bit of that. Thank you. 
Love those final muted glissandos there. Very right. cool. And that's it. A cool vibes recording, revisiting some of the best jazz composers. You'll recognize the tunes, but also be engaged with Moulier's tweaks on the arrangements. Tempos run fast in general, and there's lots of excitement in Moulier's solos. Not just speed and technique, though. In this trio format, you can check out his multiple mallet harmony concept and fluid, sometimes horn-like melodic lines. Alamano and Kim are tight in the trio and have their own solo spots to shine. Recommended for all vibes and post-bop jazz fans. <laughs> I remember I, I was when I went into this album, I was thinking still of that album Countdown that we talked about like two years ago. And he was hitting the uh, vibrato like really hard. Like it was kind of like this had this like kind of like, you know, gorilla energy on it. And I feel like on this album, he's lightened his touch quite a bit. He's still got that impressive virtuosity, even with this kind of the, the lighter kind of mm -hmm. tone. He gets it's more beautiful tone too. Another thing I noticed, he likes to leave the um the sustain sort of off. Like these notes just decay like right away. It's kind it's of interesting almost marimba like sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. He I think he's the only vibraphonist who does that, as well as probably the only one who sings along to his playing too. By the way, I figured out a solution to that because on my home speakers, uh, which are very unforgiving, you just hear every little thing on the recording, which is what I love about them. But I'm, when I'm out on the bike, I have this set of shoulder speakers and uh, the traffic kind of covered up the sound of his uh, vocalizing. <laughs> so I could only hear the vibes on that one. So right. it's kind of cool. Anyway, I did love the riches of the vibes sound throughout the recording. He gets an interesting sound and he keeps that same sound throughout. He, some vibraphone has changed like the right. level of vibrato and stuff. Short sustain. I guess he does that to allow for rapid movement in his uh, very fast... Um, scale work and you know right. figuration the, the vocal i guess the vocalizing is fun it sounds like he's having a good time right it's a little distracting from his sound though because you're listening he keeps drawing my attention when he does that but it's funny and i, I like hmm. it you know when you listen to this player that's the package um the, the album is lively throughout mulier's virtuosity doesn't come with hitting the vibes hard this time uh he's got a gentler touch as i mentioned the rest of the trio swings well and we're right in the spirit of things I find this player like really interesting. And, you know, like you said, it's all the jazz hits. So it was really fun to hear him, you know, go at them. Yeah. He's, he, <laughs> they're often more caffeinated than the original versions right. or other exactly. versions that you hear. So uh, just get ready to uh, get into that uh, sports car when you listen to this <laughs> album. Yeah, yeah. Be interested to see what he does next. Mm. All right. And the final stop on the European jazz tour is Italy. We're going to go check out drummer Alessandro Napolitano's new recording, Everything is Changing. It's on the Blue Art label. Came out October 27th. He's originally from Toronto. He's been based in Rome, Milan, and Madrid throughout his career. He's played with a lot of big European names, and we'll hear some of them on this recording. There's not much info on this recording online. Had to piece together credits from the Italian press release <laughs> and also a few credits from YouTube. I just want to say I've been hearing about the absence of material available on the internet for this album all week. <laughs> <laughs> I did write to Blue Art Productions, but I didn't get a reply. Uh, that's not uncommon when you're dealing with uh, companies in Italy. Yeah, uh, anyway, it is. The yeah. recording has two different combinations of ensembles. The Five Vibes, that's his group here, is listed in the title on the cover. And then also the Elusive Quartet. And there's different combinations of players on the tunes. 
And I think I've figured it out, so I'll point these out as we go along. Altogether, giving the list of musicians, Alessandro Napolitano, drums, American Mark Sherman on piano and vibes, our favorite Fabrizio Bosso on trumpet, Gaetano mm. Partipilo on sax, Giuseppe Bassi on bass. That's a perfect bass name, isn't it? <laughs> I guess it is, yeah. Bruno Montrone, piano, Rosario Giuliani, sax, Aldo Vigorito on bass as well, and Antonio Tosques on guitar. We're going to start out with a tune by guitarist Mark Whitfield, Emmanuel the Redeemer, and this starts out at breakneck speed. Uh, it's a super syncopated line in an eight-measure intro that gets into the melody shared by uh, Partipilo's alto sax and Sherman on vibes on this tune. Uh, it's got three similar 16-measure sections, then a contrasting 14-measure section, and a final section like the first one. Let's hear it get going. Original section. It's a really long melody. Partipilo solos first, great tone and zippy lines on the alto sax, and Sherman is up on the vibes next, mixing up the rhythmic figures nicely. Napolitano is speedy and tight underneath everything. They get back to the melody through the contrasting section, and Napolitano takes it from there on a solo and shows off some impressive techniques. So let's check out his drumming, since he's the leader here after all. So back to that final section, which closes it out, and then an outro to mirror the intro of the tune. Track two is an original from Mark Sherman, Uplifting. Sherman moves over to the piano on this one, so exit Montrone from the piano on the previous tune, and bring in Fabrizio Bosso on trumpet. A unique construction here with a rhythmic solo eight-measure piano opening. Bass and drums are in for another round of that. Then a curious staccato piano eight measures with some way out there notes into another time around with more rhythmic ideas. The horns are then in with the melody that follows a minor 12-bar blues form around twice, 
Then there's a bridge section of eight measures of piano and then eight measures of horns before another run through the blues melody. <laughs> uh, the solos follow the minor blues progression twice and then the 16 measure bridge and then one more blues chorus. Sherman is up first on piano for a lively one and then uh, Bosso's next and we can't miss this one because <laughs> it's too much fun. So let's check out his trumpet solo here. Fabrizio Bosso, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Parapilo's next on alto sax, swinging hard. Bass and drums keep the chords vamping for Napolitano to take another drum solo around the kit. And the horns are back from the blues melody start point through the sections to the end. A very cool tune. Track three, Napolitano original, Everything is Changing. Sherman goes back to the vibes and Montrone takes over piano for this one. There's an eight measure intro with dreamy ringing vibes over a great Latin groove with pumping bass from Bassi. The horn line melody has contrasting legato lines over the busy rhythms and changing modes. There are two eight-measure Latin beat A sections, a contrasting eight-measure switch up to swing with a walking bass, and a final 20-measure section that starts Latin, switches to swing, and comes back before a solo break for Partipilo, and he exchanges eight-measure sections with Bosso. Sherman's next with a vibe solo, so let's hear some of his vibe stuff on this one. Montrone gets a piano solo next with some nice harmonic explorations and punchy left-hand chords to a big climax. The horns return with a run through the melody sections with some final improvisations from the horns and vibes as it vamps to a fade out. Track 4 will get a standard Johnny Green's Body and Soul. 
Here Sherman stays on the vibes to handle the harmonies and Montrone and Partipilo sit out, so no piano or sax. It's the only standard on the recording. Sherman gets the ballad going with lush vibes and it's a showcase for Bosso to take the melody on trumpet. Great tone and classy embellishments. Sherman takes over with the B section of the melody where the bass and drums join in and Bosso is back to finish the final A section and continues on into a solo. Great playfulness and complete ease of phrasing. And Sherman picks up improvising from the B section. Basso returns for a B section and final A to the end with some slowly stacking vibes underneath. Very pretty stuff. Track five, a Sherman tune, Hardship. Sherman is on piano on this one. Montrone is still out. And Partipilo is back on sax on this tune. There's an eight measure intro with ringing bass and piano chords over some tight drums from Napolitano. The horn line melody is topsy-turvy and acrobatic. It's an eight measure repeating A section, then eight measure repeating B section with moving chords underneath, and then the whole thing repeats again. The solo is a 12 bar blues format and Basso is up for some fun first with Sherman mixing up the chords and making some substitutions underneath. Partipilo is next, so let's hear him blow some blues on this tune. Sherman's up there next on piano with some more harmonic expansion in his solo before the horns are back with the melody workout to a big final note and squeal from Bosso. Track six is Wayne Shorter's Black Nile from his 1964 recording Night Dreamer. Down to a quartet here with Sherman on piano. Bosso is out from here on out and this is a feature for Partipilo's alto playing. Bossi is up first for a bass solo on this one with a big woody tone, and Sherman gets a piano solo and has some surprising phrases and rhythms. Uh, this is his last tune, so let's check out his switch to piano from Vibes and hear some of his piano style. Partipilo follows up 
and really blows it out on this one, adding a little quote from Summertime on the way in his solo and working up to some angsty cries. Sherman, Napolitano, and Partipilo trade some eights going around before getting back to the melody and some final trading of improvisations from Sherman and Partipilo and a dissipating ending. Track seven is a Napolitano original composition to My Beautiful Mom. We get a change of personnel to the elusive quartet for the next three tunes. So Napolitano, of course, still on drums. Uh, we switch to Aldo Vigorito on bass, Antonio Tosquez guitar, and Rosario Giuliani on alto sax. It's a very pretty ballad, 32 measure AABA form. Giuliani takes the melody with great singing tone and a nice vibrato. Napolitano is showing off his softer side with brush textures, probably thinking of his mom's cooking. And Tosquez gets the first solo, relaxed with a big warm tone and nice sense of phrasing on the guitar. Giuliani follows with a super smooth sax line solo, sticking back to the melody on the final A section and a delicate ending. Very nice ballad playing. Track 8, Napolitano's original My 32 Bars a two-measure drum tom lead up to the bopping melody as advertised, 32 measures, AABA form, sounds like a variation on rhythm changes. Uh, Giuliani takes the melody and continues on with a solo. Let's hear him a little bit from his solo break on this one. ride cymbals there driving things on from the Palatano. Tosquez gets the next solo with fluid flowing lines on the guitar and nice pauses between his phrases. Giuliano and Napolitano trade some phrases before a final return to the melody and it's all good bopping fun. Track 9, Napolitano's original A Big Mouth. A mouth? Yeah, mouth. That's <laughs> yeah, kind of an odd word. <laughs> It doesn't sound like the title, though. Uh, the rhythm section gives it a four-measure intro on this lazily loping 6-8 tune. Gianni breezes through the 32-measure AABA melody. Vigorito gets a bass solo first with fine melodic ideas, and Giuliani gets a solo with some great darting boppy lines. Tosquez gets a fluid guitar solo as well before Giuliani's back with the melody to wrap it up. And the recording closes out with an original from Giuliani, Sweet at Poursuite. Part three. And this is just a duo with Napolitano and Giuliani. And it's a final speedy burner of a duet here. And uh, well, it's pretty impressive. Let's uh, just hear it get going. Thank you. 
They get into some trading after about two minutes in, and Giuliani hits on a riff after around three minutes before getting back to the dizzying opening lines to end it. Well, it's an action-packed hour of music here, kind of like two records in one, starting out with the Five Vibes Quintet, sometimes Sextet, great vibes and piano from Mark Sherman, the always skillful and fun trumpet of Fabrizio Basso, exciting sax work from both Partipilo and Giuliani. Uh, we get original tunes from Napolitano and Sherman, a standard, wage shorter, and more. A great variety of material with all kinds of swinging, Latin grooves, ballads, and high-speed bopping. Through it all, Napolitano shows off impressive technique, great grooves, and a lot of excitement. We're almost never disappointed by Italian jazz, and this recording is no exception. Great jazz with playing at the highest level. I was looking for the CD while I was listening for this, and there isn't one. Oh, oh. it drives me crazy. This often happens with Italian uh, musicians. They won't put this stuff on a CD either. I hope this one will eventually go on. It's high energy for the most part with two ballads to you know let the adrenaline relax for a bit. They could really have like a caffeinated uh, band like you know, contest with Simon Moulier, yeah. you know? Yeah. These guys have a lot of it. This is a, this is a high energy uh, listen yes. in jazz this week. A three espresso <laughs> yeah. recording listening. We should grade these with like espresso cups. Like how many, <laughs> listening to this is like drinking how many espresso cups, right. you know? Anyway, and you know, three would be a uh, Italian businessman level, you know? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> All of the playing is impressive. And of course, we on this podcast love Fabrizio Bosso because he's such a great player. He really should be yeah. world famous. He's got a great sense of humor as a player too. Always, and think, yes. And I think because he's so like kind of, you know, he's just got this good kind of positive personality. And I think that's why we don't hear too much about him, you know, because uh, you have to be almost like a brooding kind of player now to uh, yeah. make the headlines, which is kind of sad because I like, like his playing a lot. He, of course, shines on this album, too, and uh, really, I enjoyed all of the soloing on this album. Just, oh, great energy. It just felt yeah. really good. Like, these guys really enjoyed making this music, too. You always get that from Italian musicians, too. Like, yes. they really love what they're doing, you know? It's uh, kind of traditional in its uh, approach and goes for virtuosity in the soloing. Yeah, just really great. I really hope they put this on a CD. I really want one. There's Boy. some smoking sax playing on here, too. Yeah, I noticed that as well, yeah. Yeah, and Napolitano is, uh, I mean, he's got the drum chops, uh, very right. impressive drumming. Yeah, they got some hot hot stuff going on there in Italy, Italian jazz. Well, they have it. There's your European tour, and as we mentioned, uh, we're going to take a week off next week, and so we'll be back in two weeks on November yeah. 27th with a new episode, and in the time being there, we'll have a playlist up on Deezer and a link to it on Facebook if you want to know the recordings for next time. There's just one more regular one before we roll out the Christmas tunes. Right. So you can enjoy your December and we'll we'll take one for the team and start listening to them in November. Right. <laughs> no, well, Russ does do that. I I go after St. Cecilia's Day. That's okay. Christmas season for me. So that's after November 22nd. St. Cecilia, of course, being the patron state of music in the right. Catholic Church. Yes. So lots to look forward to in December and the end of November. And remember, we're going to be showing up over on the Same Difference podcast, so we're looking forward to recording that too. Don't forget to check those guys out. There's a link in the bottom of the description, and also you'll hear a little promo from them in a couple seconds now. Thanks, as always, to Fast Signs of Staten Island for our glowing neon logo that always catches the eye. That's about it for me. Any final words, Mike? No final words. I'm just kind of contemplating the uh, therapeutic session that I had during this podcast today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> we got it all out section. 
I feel better. I'm a new person now. Yeah. Look at me. I got a twinkle in my eye. I came back. You're all cleansed just by listening to music. There you go. uh, That's the beauty of it all. All right. Well, keep listening. We'll see you in a couple more weeks with episode 141. Same difference. Two jazz fans, one jazz standard. A review of a single jazz standard through music, history, and stories. And this is AJ. And this is Johnny. If you are a jazz fan and you like jazz standards, bebop, show tunes, ballads, you name it. Yeah, we've got them here. We drop a new show on you every other week, and we take a standard, and we listen to a few different versions of it. Same difference. Come join the fun. Looking forward to seeing you.